Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. Today on Miranda Warnings, we have Dean Aviva Abramovsky, the dean of the University of Buffalo Law School. Welcome, Dean. Thank you so much, Mr. Miranda. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here on Miranda Warnings. Uh, the dean is also the chair of the New York State Bar Association's new committee on autonomous vehicles, uh, which for those of you who don't know Latin, that's self-driving cars. <laughs> how's the committee? How's the committee doing? The committee doing is doing great. I have to admit, it is an incredible pleasure for me to get to be uh, get a deep dive on the self-driving car world. You know, there's very few areas of law that directly make you feel like you've really become part of the future. But this is certainly one of them. Yes, it's part of the future. But uh, I mean, aren't we already there? Don't we already have self-driving cars when I you know, when I uh, if I back up too close to someone, uh, you know, the brakes automatically go on. You get all these sensors when you're, you know, side sensors and front sensors. So aren't don't we already aren't we there already? So, so that's what's interesting, right? I mean, like with many things, it's a question of terminology. What most people would say and the engineers would say is that's really driver assisted technology. Mm. So. Um, there's something called the SEE international automation levels um, that go over the different levels, of, yes. kind of like the different levels of intelligence of the car itself. And that could be level zero, which is no automation. And then you get driver assistance, which is, you know, helping the driver. Then there's partial automation, which is probably what you're talking about. Um, high automation. And then what, what the gold standard, what we're talking about is full automation. Yeah. So, uh, how, so how close are we to you know a car taking me to a bar, letting me <laughs> drink all night, and then taking me home, and I can sleep in the back? Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the gold standard. It's it's quite funny how many people give that exact same hypothetical. Well, that's um, what people want to know. That's what Miranda warnings is all about. We okay. ask the hard questions that people want to know the answers to. So next year, the year after. Well, I guess no. Um, the the question is it, it's a it's a it's a somewhat more complicated question than it sounds, right? Because the answer would be you know could the technology um, be available in a sense that could do that function? Sure, and uh, not in the not too distant future. But the question is at what level of safety and at what level of um, you know reliability with the self driving car in all different road conditions. So there's kind of, you know, two different issues that you have to unpack there at the same time, which is at what level and also kind of like at what speed, you know, the, 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 you know, from my conversations with engineers, if we wanted to do something at a very nice, slow speed, right, it might be more, more easy than, um, you know, at, 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 at the kind of freedom of the, of the Pontiac Firebird that, you know, we're, we're kind of envisioning in our minds. So as like all good legal answers, the answer is it depends. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it depends on um, a variety of things, including how do the, the states, you know, want to regulate it and at, at what level. Well, um, let me, so let me ask yeah, you this. When we're looking at 
uh, you know, self-driving cars now and it's their initial formative stages. And uh, I'm assuming as technology expands, we'll have, you know, self-driving, you know, airplanes uh, that'll be uh, used. But in the, in its formative stages, are we looking at a situation where there'll be regulations on, even though the car is self-driving, that you, you'll need to be able to be in control somehow and that you're not going to be able to be intoxicated, you're not going to be able to sleep um, if you want? Or is that something that we're looking at now in as far as, you know, the various states uh, undergoing we're, we're, regulations? Sure. We're, we're all looking at everything. So let me just kind of take a, a step back for, for your audience, right? In a perfect world, when there were no, if there were no other cars, people, or animals, right, on the road, it would probably not be that difficult to have some form of, you know, autonomous vehicle, right, that could safely and easily carry everybody about. The The issue is really that we're all going to be in a flex stage, right, where we've got non-self-driving cars moving around. We've got all kinds of people, you know, so that there's, there's a lot of things to kind of work out in the in what we would think of as kind of like the hybrid period where you're going to have more than one type of vehicle on the road. Um, and the second thing I want everyone to think about is just kind of take a step back. It wasn't all that long ago that actually all transportation went on, was done with, you know, horses um, who in a lot of ways, they were, you know, autonomous. They walked around on their own, <laughs> right? right? you know, and we switched and there was rules and there was liability and, and questions about, you know, how you have to maintain your livery and all those kinds of things. And then the technology changed to allow for motor cars, um, which unlike horses always do exactly what they're told. Um, you know, and we progressed and we created a whole new system of, of, of rules, you know, about cars and driver maintenance and safety and signaling and, and all these different kinds of things. So, Realistically, it's not as if society hasn't gone through these types of changes before. Um, and as this technology progresses, right, I think that we will be able to shift and adapt to allow for these types of, you know, autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles. But there are a lot of different types of issues that we want to think about as, you know, before these types of cars are, you know, um, street legal in a variety of different places. Right. And I think the horses is a good example because a horse, I mean, it is guided somewhat, but it, you know, even if someone's not paying attention, a horse is not going to, you know, run into a wall. They'll, uh, right. they'll see it with their eye sensors, uh, yes. and avoid it. And that's kind of where we are now where a car, you know, we have the ability to have a car do something or not do something that uh, it shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, obviously, this is uh, we're we're looking at it from a legal perspective. Uh, what are the issues that you're seeing regarding you know liability if there's an uh -huh. accident, especially with these pesky, you know, uh, uh, dri drivers driver enabled cars, uh, which will are going to get in the way of the the driverless cars. What if there's an accident with a right. with a autonomous vehicle? Um, is the driver at fault who wasn't really doing anything? Would it be the automated system developer? Would it be the manufacturer? Who's who's responsible? Well, that's where things get interesting, right? Because you've got we we are, and that's one of the things we're having a conversation about, and the broader community is having a conversation about. So, separate apart from our committee work, the issue of liability is one that's really fun for people like me who are legal academics. My area of expertise is insurance. So, another thing hmm. you want to think about yeah. is. 
Yeah, is who's going to insure it, and how's that going to look? Well, they're going to um, go out of business eventually, right? Be, uh, the automobile insurance, because self-driving cars presumably will be much safer. Oh, but, well, I somehow doubt that the insurance industry is going to go out of business <laughs> over it. Um, that would be a surprise to everybody. And um, they, you know, they still insure all kinds of other things um, and manage to have liability. But again, answer your question, right? Let's just think about this, right? We've got a lot of different types of standards of care, right, in the tort world. So when you think about cars, you usually think about the traditional tort model, right? Somebody is negligent, causes an accident, um, and we go through our, our, our basic system of liability, a lawsuit, right? Somebody gets sued for doing something, for, for deviating from their appropriate standard of care. The quit, but with something like a car, you have two, you have a couple different things that can be involved at the same time. You could have regular tort liability, but you could also have products liability. Is the more appropriate standard for a car, instead of it being regular negligence for the driver, is it a product liability for the manufacturer? Or do we, you know, a lot of people think that basically we could take regular tort law and then the, the, OEM, which is an acronym that I always forget exactly what it stands for, but it's basically the computer algorithm. The designer of the computer algorithm is is the driver, and you know that, it, and it's the one. And so, so you could tack on regular liability that way, and 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 we would go forward. But it's really not that simple because of the reality of the of the nature of who's crafting the algorithm. So, um, you know, and I feel like I'm talking too much. You know, jump in here and stop me, but. When no, you're, you're doing well. You're 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 doing great. Um, when you're, <laughs> you're doing great. <laughs> when you're talking about a self-driving car, it's not like it was created out of Zeus's head. Okay, it's not like Athena just appeared sui sponte in the world. It was designed by somebody. It was still right. created by humans. Okay, so that's the first thing to remember that there are people involved in the designation. Now, there's some people who are futurists who are going to say in the future. Sure, we'll design the algorithm, but the car will be so smart, it'll learn itself. It'll be like a teenage driver and just go on in life. And that creates all kinds of other problems about what the liability is then. But pushing all that aside, which is almost a futurist ethics question, right, of artificial intelligence itself, let's just work on the basic theory that we understand about computer programming. So somebody or group of people creates a program. And the way a self-driving car works is one on um, basically statistics and risk management. There's going to be it's, it has it, it has inputs. The other thing to remember is the car has to get its information from somewhere. So it can have a camera or it could use radar or you could use LIDAR, which is laser radar. Um, it could get maps downloaded into, into it. There's all different kinds of ways that it can get its inputs so that it could what we would call, you know, see, so it could perceive its environment. And then there's and then the computer algorithm also has to make decisions. So the radar or the LIDAR sees something in front of it or the camera sees something in front of it. And it has to try to make the decision, is that um, a car? Is it a snowbank? Is it a horse? Is it a cloud? Okay, you know, right. and the, that's how the programs are designed to, to be able to say with a certain risk, um, a, a certain predictive quality that it, that it believes something is something and it makes its decision based on that. And that's where it gets interesting on issues of liability. So my understanding of the very tragic um, Tesla case is that one of the cars ran into a white truck that was in front of a cloud mm. and that the car thought it was a cloud. So it didn't stop. Um, now, again, that could be wrong. That's what I heard. But if you think about it, that, that makes 
sense, right? Just like human beings are only able to make decisions as good as our inputs are, what we can see, what we can perceive, the same thing is true about the autonomous car. It's only going to be as good as its capacity to receive inputs and then process them. And one of our challenges as uh, lawyers and regulators is to say, what level of predictive risk is permissible, right, for the car? You know, because there's there's no way to design something that's always going to make the correct decision. But then again, humans don't always make the correct decision. Right. Uh, So let me ask you, let me ask you about that, because that brings another, I think, somewhat uh, interesting ethical issue. So let's let's just say that the the autonomous car can, in fact, uh, see what's you know around it and make a decision that's as good or better than, uh, you know, a human driver. I mean, we don't you, sometimes we might uh, see things on the road that aren't that might not be there or make mistakes, uh, even though we have uh, the ability to see what's out there. So let's just assume that we can get a car that's doing that all the time and can be as good or better. But it has to be programmed to make these decisions. And what happens when, you know, the car sees a potential danger to the the lives of the passengers in the vehicle, but in order to save them has to take another step that might endanger someone that's outside of the vehicle. Um, and they have to make a split second decision between saving the life of its passengers or saving or uh, uh, saving the life of someone that's perhaps in, nearby. So, mm-hmm. I mean, are there going to be like these, uh, uh, you know, a rule of, of order as to, you know, what the uh, computer is supposed to be doing and deciding? Uh, yeah. What's interesting is that literally everyone asked that question. Oh. Apparently for lawyers, that is the ethical question. And and what's interesting is the engineering response is usually, well, we'll have created a system that will always try to make the best choice possible. And the lawyers come back and say, but what about, you know, the, this, this ethical dilemma? Right. So, um, and, and the answer is, is that, that there are going to have to be some decisions made. So, so first of all, right, you know, you, it will be a very difficult marketing campaign to sell cars that say, we sacrifice your safety for others, right? Our standard is always to save, you know, basically in that situation, you know, to take the hit and not hit something else, right? So when, you know, you could see how that could be a marketing conundrum for the car. Um, I wouldn't buy that car. Right. You wouldn't (laughs) buy that car. No one's going to buy that car. Right. Nor does that make any real sense as a regulatory issue. I'm just I'm just working through the hypothetical with you. So, you know, and that's one of the reasons why it becomes a very interesting, tricky conversation, because we're presuming and always have presumed. Right. That car manufacturers, the purpose of car manufacturing is to become safer and safer, usually for the driver. Right. You own the car or you're the passenger in the car and the cars keep adding on, you know, additional safety things to protect the passenger. Right. Um, And the idea being that if someone else is harmed by the car, that's usually an accident or it's negligent or something bad happened. Right. And that it, it couldn't be avoided. It's something similar that has to be worked out. The difference is, is that with the 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 fact that these are computer programs is that unlike a human being that has to make that decision individually every time, given the variety of circumstances and the law, um, 
you know, reacts to the concept of the individual autonomy of the driver and has always taken that into account as to what is or isn't correct behavior. When you know that the car is always going to respond or the way it's programmed, it becomes a much more difficult question to ask. And and there is a call or many people are saying that's a standard that we probably need to think about articulating. Um, you know, what level of protection for the car driver itself and what, you know, and, and vice versa to the extent that it's possible. The way it gets really interesting is that a lot of the engineers are, are like, well, you know, the car can machine learn, you know, so it's not always necessarily going to be doing exactly what we programmed it to do. And I was like, oh, wait, 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 hold, hold on, hold on, hold on here. So, you're, you know, you're envisioning a future where you program the car, but it can pick up its own habits, you know, <laughs> how exactly right. is that going to work? Um, and, you know, so again, it becomes kind of um, a futurist model when we, when we need to understand predictive learning and then what standard of reliability, how often does it get tested to make sure that, you know, it hasn't learned the wrong things, um, you know, and, and, and that's why this question of, you know, a fully autonomous fleet of cars just driving you around becomes a tricky one to actually implement um, within our current structures of laws. You know, um, and, and, and there's a lot of serious, you know, um, both ethical, moral, and safety really concerns that I believe is good that we're having this conversation to start fleshing out. Right. And, um, you know, we're looking at uh, let's let's get past the self-driving part. We already have the technology where there's so much data uh, coming out of the operations of the vehicle itself, including you know sensors and cameras and radar and you know other detection devices. Um, are you looking at you know the use of those that data in court, for example, for uh, automobile accidents that occur with you know, with drivers, uh, so that you could recreate, uh, you know, an accident and what was going on and, and add that to uh, the picture that is painted with respect to an accident? Yeah, we, ha- we the community is going to be addressing what we're calling data security, data processing, data privacy, all of those issues. And that creates a whole other bunch of, of real conundrums. So again, if it's you and an inert car, with no computers and no sensors, whatever happens happened, and the only evidence you know will be physical. Right. So my car, have, my car would be like Vegas, right? So whatever right. happens in the car stays and, in the car. Uh, right. Exactly. And we've been dealing with that situation, you know, th- that reality for a long, long time. But now you have, you know, the car that can kind of snoop on you, um, and the car might be recording a lot of of what you've been doing or not doing, and it has the capacity. So that becomes a really interesting question. Like who's, who's, who, who owns that data? You know, I mean, is that, is that the type of thing that should always be subpoenable? Um, you know, is there, what are your privacy rights within your car from your car? You know, um, right. And a lot of that information could be going, what, back to the manufacturer, um, where it would be recoverable or would it be staying in the car and somehow accessible? That's one of the very great questions that we all need to work out. And then there's the question of whether or not the car comp what, what part of that information does the car company wish to believe is proprietary? 
you know, I mean, and that becomes a real big issue because again, the, the proprietary nature of the, if, if, you know, we, we, the courts deemed, um, that these, some of this information is proprietary to the company. Well, if the car was responsible for, if that algorithm was responsible for making some of these decisions, you know, does that have to come in? And in which case do they lose the proprietary nature of their, of their algorithms? Right. So does that then really curb the interest in innovation? There's a lot of things going on all at the same time as this develops. Well, so you've been you've been looking at this. Obviously, you're familiar with the some, the technology as well. I, obviously, you can't you can't begin looking at the legal implications without understanding the technology. What are you envisioning as the you know the next phase that we're going to be seeing um, in the general public? Like in the next, let's say, two to three years, what's going to be the you know the next phase of uh, moving towards uh, autonomous vehicles? Well, I think we're going to see a lot more incremental change, and that makes sense also for our system of laws. We work things out, you know, like the um, the driver assist when it kind of self parks, you know, it, it moves into your parallel parking and tries to help right. you parallel park. Um, of course, the driver is supposed to still be, you know, awake while doing that and involved. Of course, um, but you know, inevitably, someone's fenders are probably going to get dented and headlights are going to get blown out. And the, we can start working through these issues as a legal system, you know, as those cases emerge within our current system of, of, of laws, within the common law. That's one of the beauties of the common law right. is that it has the flexibility to take these, you know, through the case method and develop a body of, of, of decision so that we can start eking out new principles of understanding. Is there any legislation that's uh, either pending in New York or that you, you think we might need to be advocating for that would be necessary to address some of these issues, you know, currently? Anything going on right now? Well, there's, you know, I, I think one of the big issues that's being discussed is opportunities for more testing. You know, the, 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 some of the people in, in science and industry think that the, that the, that the uh, limits on and how you could test the cars in New York is still a little bit um, restrictive. So, you know, finding different places or different areas, which could be kind of um, testing zones, you know, might be um, coming for it. So a good example of something that's going on is uh, Optimus Ride in the Brooklyn Navy Yards that they have a fleet of self-driving cars down there that, that can zip you around from one area to another. That's kind of like in a closed world, you know, at diff- at a specific speed, you know, on routes that they have already, you know, mapped out. And that, you know, is, is a potential model going forward, right? You know, that it's not just any car on all roads, but some right. cars on some roads, you know, in some areas. And so some of the legislation we're seeing now is with respect to, the uh, testing of uh, these types of vehicles to make that permissible so that we can. uh, I don't know if there's any, yeah, I'm not sure what's currently pending. I think that that's where the conversation is going. Like what, you know, to what extent, you know, and, and where can these be done? Cause, cause let's, let's, let's be, you know, simple here. It's a big difference to say we want to test out like in an airport giant parking lot, a little self-driving bus that goes, 15 miles an hour, you know, on a specific route, <laughs> right? right? 
than the than, than a you know a true you know than, than a personal passenger vehicle anywhere on a road on you know on country roads in snow and ice, right? Um, and you you could you could understand why the um, both the risk, right, and the safety risk is lower if you if you're thinking about a you know think about any big airport, and, you know the people basically the little car goes in the same loop all the time. Um, you know, you could, you could probably have a situation where you could have a certain predictive, um, level. It doesn't go very fast, right? right? Um, right. you know, and that is a whole different, um, level of risk right. than, you know, than a, than a true passenger car, you know, house to road to highway. Right. Well, and with the, with the simple description you gave, I mean, we're there already. That's, uh, technologically, uh, I think it's just uh, that's something that we certainly have the capability of doing. But the question, the next question, I guess, is as these progress and that becomes more predominant, are, are we going to be losing sectors of the workforce? The person that drives that little car around the airport or, or truck drivers or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, are we going to be looking at, you know, displacement of uh, substantial portions of the workforce? I guess it depends on how substantial the deployment of the of the vehicles would be. You know, I think that it's just like when you get a monorail or a bus, you know, in those airports that no longer have drivers, you know, that are computer operated. So the answer is yes. Right. Um, you know, that there there's there's really little way to see that happening, you know, although I think that there'll be a pretty long period of time, you know, where there'll be um, you know, for, for various reasons that we would want to have um, human beings involved. So one of the examples that the engineers tell me also is like with elevators for a very, very long time, even though elevator operators weren't actually needed, yeah. um, people were very concerned about this idea of this, you know, self-lifting mechanism, right? Driving them up and down in elevators. So you had elevator um, operators in existence for a very, very long time. Right. Um, until people became comfortable with the idea of the elevator being able to move you up and down with a certain amount of safety without the existence of a human being to assist you in case you got stuck or in case something happened. And then I think all those elevator operators became, you know, drivers of uh, delivery drivers, and now you're going to take away their jobs again, which is, seems like a real double whammy. Um, it, yeah, I mean, there. I, I think that there is no way for us to envision a future of automation where a certain type of employee, you know, wouldn't necessarily displace. And that will have serious social consequences. Although, like I said, I don't actually envision that, from my understanding of the technology, happening in large numbers anytime soon. Right. So um, let, me, let me ask you this. What's, what do you think is the biggest legal issue that we're going to have, let's say, anytime soon? Um, in the next five years or or so, with respect to uh, autonomous vehicles, what's the what's the what's the next what's the battleground legally that we're going to see? Is I think it, the bat yeah, I think the battleground legally is actually what what you mentioned before is going to be on the information. What right. information from the car and from the automobiles is available um, during litigation? What you know where where does um, you know, pr proprietariness go, and where is consent, you know, for the driver? Um, again, all of these privacy and data issues are probably going to come up first, um, you know, because they are they already happen in the assisted technology world. Well, 
Dean, thank you very much for coming on Miranda Warnings to talk about these very interesting and important issues. And thank you for your work, not only um, at UB Law School, but your work on behalf of the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Autonomous Vehicles. We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where you can uh -huh. share anything uh, with our listeners that you think uh, uh, might be worthy of, of, uh, of viewing or listening. Of course. So, um, first of all, that was a quick 25 minutes. I hope you found it interesting. It went fast for me. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. So here's my, okay. Everybody's listening. Listen up, right? You don't always get a Dean of a law school giving you book advice. I spend a lot of time talking with people who are interested in going to law school and they aren't sure if they want to attend or if they can do it or what they should read beforehand. And I tell them that the most inspirational book that I ever read about the law before I went to law school is Gideon's Trumpet, hmm. which is the story of the case that led to Gideon versus Wainwright and the provision of counsel. Um, I think there's something about a pro se litigant and how they can change the world themselves that can inspire everyone to understand that the law is the law is the operating mechanism for society and that we are all people in it, parties to it. And that acquiring, you know, you are more than capable enough to be the type of person to acquire a legal education of any variety and go out there and do things that possibly do a case that will truly change the way our civilization operates. So I love Gideon's trumpet. You know, I am a true believer um, in, in the fact that we are, in a world where we can become ever more perfect and we could do it together through the civilized ordering mechanism that are courts of law. Well, that's great. Uh, Gideon's trumpet, uh, the right to counsel, obviously, is one of the top three Miranda warnings. Uh, so, <laughs> yes. it's, so, you know, that's also very, uh, I think, uh, important as well. Uh, the right. How apropos, yes, how apropos for the right. show. So yes. a little, little uh, pandering to Miranda warnings is always welcome. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Dean, for, for your work on behalf of the Bar Association and on behalf of legal education, as well as for your, your time with us here on Miranda Warnings. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.